0: the sales process is your entire business. So with free up, like if we were not doing well in the sales process, then things wouldn't have gone well. So we had to get that down. And so that's me talking to clients first, developing the sales process, the follow-ups and all that. Then it's me recording sales calls, creating SOPs, teaching someone to do it. Then it's me being really on top of them, micromanaging them, checking their emails, correcting them, teaching them, being on calls with them, that they did and then giving them feedback after the call. And then it's slowly backing off to where they can hopefully take over.
1: Hi, I'm Lucas James. And I'm Jordan Ross. And I'm AJ Casada, And we're the co-hosts of How to Scale an Agency. Here we go! After scaling our own agencies to over $185,000 per month in sales and working with agencies doing hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue like Hawk Media and Neil Patel, we've made this show to interview the top digital marketing agency owners and highlight the fastest ways to scale your agency if you'd like to join the best digital marketing agency community on the planet and let us help you scale go to twiz.io to sign up today hello everybody welcome to another episode of how to scale an agency i'm on with the nathan hirsch nathan is a successful founder and the founder of econ balance and outsource school he's best known for co-founding freeup.net in 2015 with an initial $5,000 investment and scaling it to $12 million in yearly revenue. We're really excited. He's sold that business since. So thank you so much, Nathan, for being on the show. Appreciate it.
0: Yeah. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here and hopefully share some knowledge.
1: Nathan, what is the number one piece of advice you'd give somebody for growing a business to past eight figures? So that it's $12 million per year revenue run rate.
0: Yeah. So I'm a big fan of consistency over like big sprints or like shiny object syndrome. Like for me, I try to do be very consistent every single week in what I'm doing. For example, every single day I'll wake up and I'll pitch 5 podcasts. I will pitch 5 blog articles. We'll write content on our social media. We'll reach out to 5 potential partners, 5 potential influencers. And if you're doing that every single day, it's going to lead to a lot of great things. And we do that for all parts of our business. I'm a big fan of Networking calls, for example, I try to schedule three new networking calls every single week with people in the space that are six, seven, eight figure entrepreneurs that I can both learn from, but also maybe become partners with or maybe find some way to to help them. I think that's how you and I connected originally, too. So that consistency in all parts of your business, whether it's customer service, whether it's cold outreach, marketing, whatever it is, to me, that's the key to everything. And I feel like a lot of people, they go through these valleys, hills, whatever, of up and down where they're, Hey, they're going to do cold outreach for two weeks. And then they get distracted with TikTok over here. And then they're trying to do all these things. Instead, you're very consistent. You're figuring out what's working and what's not, and you're pulling back and what's not working and you're doubling down on what is. And I'm always a big fan of like low risk, high reward situations. Situations. I think we kind of live in the days of everyone trying to get funding and take big risks. And I'm the opposite. Like If I can get on a podcast, like, sure, maybe no one listens right. to it and it wastes 30 minutes of my time. But best case scenario, it gets in front of thousands of people, evergreen, backlink, SEO, all that kind of stuff. And those are the opportunities that, that I look for
1: hundred percent. Let me ask you this. When you go from seven figures to eight figures as a business, from what I've seen, and I actually, my business is about $2 million per year. So we're not quite at the 10 yet, but that's definitely on the agenda, obviously. I feel like you either get there by just finding insane sales volume and just hitting that and being able to scale that up. And then also, I don't know if this is possible to hit this number without having the second part, but Also, it's making sure that you have insane customer success in place so that you can keep your clients for a super long time. If you were to start your business over again, I guess maybe let's just take free up, for example. Would you prioritize keeping customers for 12 months or longer as one of the main focuses in the business? What would be like the main thing that has to be right in order to get to eight figures?
0: Yeah. So I'll kind of flip that. So customer service is key, but a lot of times you can't do great customer service without operations, which includes the customer service experience. And those initial hires you make early in your company are so key because you want them to grow with the company, hopefully keep them, but also become team leaders or seniors on your team going forward, where anyone that joins the team goes through the seniors, they buy into the culture, they buy into your vision, your values, your ethics, and that kind of spreads throughout the team. And what happens is if you make those initial hires and they're either lower level people or they don't buy in or they're only good at one task and they don't want to evolve into become leaders, that puts you in a really bad spot down the line because almost impossible to grow to eight figures without good team leaders that can manage people and manage tasks and projects and your customers. You're not going to be able to do that once you get into mid seven figures, maybe even before right. that, depending on your business model. So I think getting those initial people are key. And when we're vetting the first like four VAs, employees, whatever you're hiring, we want to know, hey, do you want to become a leader? Do you want to become a manager? Do you like doing it? Do you see yourself in here long-term? Because there are people out there that are really good employees or virtual assistants that they just don't want that. They'd hate managing people. They're very comfortable in their stable role, whatever it is. And that makes it very tough to grow. It's so much harder to find a manager outside of your company. You're gonna to have to pay them top dollar to leave whatever they're doing. Put them into your company. Then you got to get everyone on your team to buy in that this new person is now in charge of everything. And then it's still going to take you three months, six months, whatever it is to find out if they're good or not. It's way right. easier to find initial core people and have them grow with the company. Our first four hires at FreeUp, a bookkeeper named Marius, hiring a great bookkeeper from day one, super important. A person who did recruiting, Chicky Ann. So she helped us get freelancers on the platform. And then two customer service reps, because we care a lot about customer service. And Our customer service is 24 seven, so it really takes two people to manage. And they started right. off with very basic tasks. Chicky Ann would post jobs on Facebook to get freelancers, and Marius would pay people. And the customer service people would respond to my inbox. And over time, right. we promoted them and made them team leaders. And when we sold the company, they ran everything. They were building SOPs, managing people. Um, letting go of them was probably one of the hardest things of letting go of free up or selling free up because they went with the company. But right. we could not have grown past a certain point without them. There's just too much stuff going on for me or my business partner to do.
1: Yeah. And, w- but with that in mind though, so I think this podcast, part of the reason a lot of people listen to it is because they love the metrics. They love the data behind it that people are able to share. And so, you know, having the right people in place is definitely so important. But when it comes to getting to eight figures though, is it almost impossible to get there as a service provider if you can't keep your customers for over a year? I guess you could, in theory, just have so many sales, but I feel like if you have so many sales and people are leaving before a year, then you might have a bad rep. And so then that will get around more because you're bigger and then it might tarnish reputations. If you think about this differently, definitely let me know because it's my prism, which I'm looking through everything, but I'm curious, maybe I'm looking at it wrong. But would you say that's one of the more important things when it comes to it?
0: Definitely. And even if you want to sell your company, they want to see that customers stick around. And we were going through due diligence, we had a number of customers, how long they've been with us. The thing to keep in mind with free up, which is why like a marketplace, similar to an agency, but slightly different, there was a lot of starting and stopping. So clients could sign up for free. They could hire a graphic designer for a project, not use them for two weeks, come back, use them again. They could hire a customer service rep or five customer service reps full-time. They could hire someone for a two-month project. So they're measuring turnover the same way that you'd measure like a monthly PPC client is not exactly the same, but the same logic applies like the people that bought the company. And for us growing, we wanted to see, hey, we're billing a thousand clients every single week. And that number is going up every single week. And yeah, there's some people starting and stopping, but overall people are staying. And it's even more prevalent in my two bookkeeping brands, Econ Balance and Accounts Balance, bookkeeping itself is pretty sticky, but you need to make sure that you're not turning people over. And if you have any kind of like long onboarding where it really takes a while to get going, that it makes it even more important that you keep people on. And I'm a big proponent of referrals and getting like affiliate programs and having your customers help you get customers. And that's only possible if you have a high level of customer service as well. And I'll also add in that you can't compete with um, like the big players in whatever your space is on marketing, on development, on, on whatever it is, you can compete with them on customer service if you do it right. And that gives you that unique touch to to steal a percentage of the market that you need to run a successful business.
1: yeah, and I think that's part of why I'm hammering so much on this is because many people listen to the podcast. They're in that sixty thousand dollars a month range in their agency or their service business, and they're trying to get to the multiple seven figures. And I think if you had to think of it as a financial model, though, what is the, let's just say an agency, right? Not a different kind of model, but pure marketing agency or pure service business. In your mind, from a blank slate, if you're just investing in a company as a service business, how long do they need to retain their customers at minimum to be able to even hit eight figures? Is it minimum 12 months? Is it minimum two years? Because so many people it's six months or less, right? So what's the minimum, would you say?
0: Yeah, I would say a year and a half to two years minimum if you really want to grow. Even if you're turning people over at the one-year mark, that'll crush you at some point. It really needs to be longer than that. And there needs to be specific like reasons, like why are people leaving? Do they outgrow you? Is it a rare situation? Do they go out of business. And you also have to be strategic about it from a customer service standpoint. Like You probably will mess up at some point in your entrepreneurial career, whether it's you or your team or whatever it is, And what can you do to get people to stick around? A good example of this, when we started FreeUp, like if a virtual assistant messed up, we we know how hard it is to get a new customer versus keeping an old customer. So we'd rather refund someone, give them hours of a new person, cover replacement costs to a new VA, take a short-term hit from a finance perspective to keep a client on from years to come. That math works All the time, no matter what business you're in. So making sure that if you do make a mistake, you're owning up, you're making it right, you're making the client whole again. Just giving them a refund doesn't always make them whole again because if they wasted a lot of time and then they just get their money back, they're not even. You need to go above and beyond that to make them happy so they stick around.
1: That's really interesting. And on that point of a year and a half minimum to two years minimum, what are your thoughts on contracts versus monthly subscriptions? Do you think agencies should always have minimum contracts or do you think there should be monthly subscription options for people?
0: Yeah, contracts are tricky. So you can get people to sign year-long contracts or two years or or whatever it is. And that can work. Like for Econ Balance, my accounts Balance, my bookkeeping, I'm very much on monthly. My whole thing is if someone signs a one-year contract with me, And then they don't want to work with me after six months. What am I going to do? Take them to court, like force them to work with me for the next six months. That that usually doesn't work out that great for me anyway. So depending on your business, and really it depends on how long it is to onboard someone, especially stuff like SEO, where SEO doesn't work in 30 days. It's more of a six month, a year, whatever it is. Those contracts can make sense, but you can't go into the mentality that, oh, just because I have this contract in place, I'm safe. I'm having this client for a year or I'm going to take him to court or whatever it is. If a client doesn't want to work with you, you need to listen to that feedback, figure out why, probably figure out a way to part ways amicably because it probably doesn't make sense for you to continue working with them. Anyway, you should go find another client that will stick with you long term.
1: That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I think that's a big debate in the industry. And I will say that of the companies I've interviewed that are eight figures on this podcast, definitely minimum a year, whether they did a contract or a monthly subscription, that was definitely the case for all of them is they never had their clients churn before a year. It was almost always over that. So that's like that big milestone. And it does make you, the cool thing about it is if you're listening to this podcast and you're doing $60,000 a month or, or $80,000 a month in sales, Literally, if you could just double or triple your attention, it's so much easier than having to go and get a bunch of new people to be convinced to work with you. You have people who already want to work with you. They're already sold. They're just leaving because they're not getting what they think they deserve or they think they can get something else elsewhere. So that's really good insight. Now, I'm curious in terms of downgrades and even excluding people from the list. If there's, let's say you're talking to someone, they're a client of yours and they want to leave after six months because they say, Hey, this is really good, but I wasn't able to get the results I wanted. Do you guys ever encourage people to do downgrade options? Or do you just say, Hey, come back to us when you're ready. Cause that churn does happen for a variety of reasons. Could just be cash flow. Would you rather keep a client at a 10th of the cost or even like 30% of the cost or just let them go? What's your mentality around that?
0: I've always been the proponent of trying to keep the client if possible. Like We've had situations with free up where they were hiring a VA, but the VA was too much for them. And we wanted to try to get them a cheaper VA or negotiate with the VA. And a lot of times they would accept a cheaper price because they'd rather have a stable job than have to go out and get another job. So I'm always down to explore options. I try to avoid working with businesses that don't have money or are not making money or are potentially going out of business soon, because you'll just waste a lot of time that way. Like I, even in econ balance of my bookkeeping, if a client's business is doing poorly and they can't afford a bookkeeper, sure. I could give them a discounted rate for a few months and that might keep my revenue high temporarily, but I'm also going to waste a lot of team time and energy on someone who might not be around in six months. And I'd rather go find a really profitable agency and do their bookkeeping and assign the old bookkeeper to to them. So it, it definitely depends on the situation and the reason. If it's just like a cost thing and the client wakes up one day and says, hey, I'm spending too much on PPC. I need to spend a little bit less. If I can make it work from a business side, I'll try to keep them. But if it's something where their business is going downhill, I don't necessarily want them because they're not my ideal client and something's changed.
1: Yeah. And that's a great point you bring up. I think there's a you answered both those questions in one, which if I'm summarizing correctly, it's you do want to exclude people who you know are going to churn early because you're going to have to spend the same amount of time and energy talking to that person as someone who would stay for longer. So you're deprioritizing people who could stay for longer. And then secondly, you're saying that if there is somebody who is solid and does have money, but for whatever reason, they have a short-term cash flow issue or maybe they want a better pricing, you are willing to work with those people at times to keep them because you know that if it dips a little bit, you might be able to get them back up another upsell in two, three months and get them back to where they were even more just to maintain that relationship is what you're saying
0: yeah, absolutely. And there's unique situation as well. I've had people who I gave them a discount for two months or one month, and then the price kicked back in, and that's all they needed. and their business picked back up. They had a slow month and they're forever they feel forever in debt because I hooked them up during a slow time for them, and they'll stay on um even longer. So it's very case by case. You just want to make sure that you're not sacrificing the long term of your business for a short revenue bump or a temporary revenue bump.
1: Yeah, because that's what usually happens. I see so many agencies and service businesses, they do a lot of sales in one month, they see this huge spike, and then it just drops after a quarter because nobody stayed. And this because they were either not doing enough customer support, they were selling to the wrong people, they were doing all sorts of stuff that didn't work. So that's really good to keep in mind. Now, in terms of pricing, this is a big thing everybody's always trying to figure out. right? What should I sell people? What kind of price should I sell them on? So when it comes to pricing, Do you think you should always keep the price high or do you think that sometimes it makes sense to just get somebody in at an entry price? Maybe it's just like an entry price or even just like a one-time price for like maybe it's a initial consultation or like an initial engagement and then you try to get them onto a higher price so that way you close more people into your network, you start working together and then you could ramp it up or do you think it's better just to keep it high and anyone who can't start with you at a lower price, you just don't work with them? What's your thoughts on pricing?
0: Yeah. So overall, I try to avoid one-time pricing if possible. I'm a big proponent of recurring revenue. I won't start a business unless the main focus of the business is recurring revenue. And there's been companies that I've talked about investing in and if their recurring revenue isn't 95% plus of their business, I just wouldn't be interested in that. So that's my overall mentality. And I shoot for like fair price, but extremely high level of service and maybe not being the highest price out there, but a step below that. I try to avoid If my customers are like college kids or new entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs that are not doing well or low six figures, that's a recipe for disaster a lot of times because the failure rate of those businesses and the chance of them running out of money is just so high. So I want to eliminate those from my client pool and make it so the people that sign on are paying a good fair price. They have high expectations. If I'm getting started, if I'm running a new agency, starting with the highest price might not make a lot of sense because that's a big deliverable that you have to maintain. And that right there could lead over to turnover. If you still have stuff to figure out on your side, I'm also a big proponent of like minimum viable product. And if you're starting an agency for the first time, giving someone a discounted rate for three months and getting those initial clients and use them to to tweak with econ balance and accounts balance. My booking businesses, when we started this up, we were very straightforward with our audience. He said... This is new. We're going to figure it out. We want feedback. We want to know what doesn't work so we can make it better. We'll give you two free months and favorable pricing. If you sign up and you're a beta tester at the same time, if you're going to sign up as a beta tester, we ask that you are looking for a long-term bookkeeper. Don't waste our time, but you will get hooked up a bit and please give us feedback and help us break yeah. everything and improve the process. So I'm a big proponent of that. But if you're a veteran entrepreneur and doing something that you already do, if you're starting a marketing agency, but you used to run a different marketing or something, that might not make a lot of sense.
1: Yeah, that actually is really insightful. And I think the whole concept of MVP, I think, is really important because there's this whole idea of flow before friction, which has become popularized by Alex Ramosi with $100 million offers of just get people in, get them doing something, get that feedback, then iterate on top of it. So that's really interesting. I am curious, though, in terms of how you determine pricing. So I'll give you a real life example of one of The people I work with, I won't say their name, but they get a lot of inbound, right? And they're able to close big deals, right? But they're trying to explore this new option of going outbound. And even the people they get from inbound, a lot of the times tell them, hey, I can't afford this price, but I totally see the value. And I, if, can you do it for $1,000 less? So instead of $3,000 a month, could you use $2,000 a month? And the margins are actually healthy at $2,000 a month. Like they still have pretty solid margins at $2,000 a month. At that point, if the customer sees the value, but they just can't like stomach the higher price, should they drop the price? Or should they keep it and just take a lot less clients? Even if the other ones were good, they just can't afford the $3,000 a month.
0: So I'm a big fan of trying to model it out. Like, what does that look like at five clients? And I accept two clients that are a little less, but then does that also work at 10? Does that also work at 20? How many people am I going to need? Does that mean I'm going to have to hire more customer service reps or my software costs go up or whatever it is? A lot of times people don't factor in the additional overhead that goes up over time. So like the margin per client might look pretty good, but when you look at it on a bigger scale, it doesn't look that great because your other costs are going up or maybe it's vice versa. And that's not the case because you have a business model where that doesn't happen. So for me, I would try to model it out where it's, Hey, what if I had 50 clients, but I give 20 of them or 15 of them a cheaper price, do those margins actually make sense for me? And if the answer is yes, then it probably makes sense to move forward with it. If the answer is no, and it's just temporary and long-term, we're going to regret it, or you're going to have to go to them and jack up their price anyway and potentially waste time on a client that's not going to be there long term, that can really hurt you as well. I mean, with free up, when we were figuring out the fees to charge the freelancer and the VA, we spent a lot of time running those models. And same thing with the bookkeeping. And that's been something that you tweak over time as you see what's working and not working.
1: Is there a good place where people could go to determine those models? Or is it usually just spreadsheets, Google Sheets, any good places by chance that might be good for people?
0: I don't. I've always just done it on Google Sheets and sat down with my business partner and just run the numbers. And hey, what if this happened? What if this happened? What if this happened? And plan for best case scenario, worst case scenario, average costs if you have a rough month. And I always err on the conservative side. I always assume I'm going to have to hire one more person than I think or that software. There's some software I'm forgetting that's going to be a cost or whatever it is. And there's other stuff you might not think about like Stripe fees or whatever it is.
1: If you release that as a free thing, definitely let me know. I will go and, or even pay it, I will go share it with everyone. Because I think that's going to be something people would really enjoy.
0: Good idea. I never thought about that. It's a good, good yeah. Podcast idea. Just
1: super great offer right there. But now that we're on the subject of pricing, when it comes to profit margins, let's do agencies because the SaaS businesses are different animals sometimes, but let's do marketing agencies. If you're a traditional marketing agency, what should you expect in terms of gross profit, EBITDA margin, net profit, assuming that you don't have any weird kind of tax structure or anything, just like boilerplate, traditional, let's even just make it more specific. Let's say you're an SEO agency and you mainly do content marketing. What are some ballparks? And if you don't know the exact numbers, even if it's like just if you were to launch an SEO agency, what would be the ballparks you would look for?
0: Yeah, we've actually talked about like adding an SEO agency to our portfolio. To me, and I'm going to assume that the businesses are remote and lean because that's the only businesses that that I like to run. They don't have some huge office or something like that. I mean, we're shooting for net 30 plus margins, maybe even net 30, 35, and then gross your, I don't know, you don't have many expenses. So maybe slightly above that in that 40 or whatever. And that would be a minimum. And what I've known about SEO agencies just from the research that we've been doing is you can actually do better than that if you do it right, especially if you're going at a higher client base, SEO is one of those things where it does not make sense to go after the low ticket just because if someone can't commit to you for six months to a year, you know that you're not getting results anyway. And you don't want to deal with people like that when it comes to SEO and get into an argument over what work you did for three months or anything like that. So you should be focusing on people that understand it's a long-term thing, understand they're going to have to invest money, have a marketing team, potentially have a marketing budget that they're willing to spend That's small potatoes to what they're doing. So those margins can get a little bit higher. I think it goes more to why I say even for more like those PPC agencies or something that it can be a little bit more monthly.
1: hundred percent. Yeah. That, that really makes a lot of sense now in terms of sales, because that's a big thing for a lot of people, obviously what I see a lot of people do is well, we'll start with the front end. So we talked about excluding people from the client pool. You already mentioned that earlier. Should you also, like when you try to get people to come through, is it best to have people fill out a form of some kind that basically says, do you meet all these criteria? So that way you're not wasting their time or your time. Do you go to that level of intensity when it comes to filtering people? Or do you just try to teach your sales reps to do that on the call to make sure that they're a good fit or not?
0: It definitely depends on the business model. I've always been a big proponent of trying to get people on the phone, but also making sales calls like very short and efficient to where they they work really well and they're not like eating up an hour of your team's time for each call. I like on our sites, we've always given people an option. They can create an account and fill out a form, or they can book a call, or they can do the form and then a call if they want to and leave it up to them on how they want to go about it. Like I own Outsource School, which is our membership for hiring, and you can book a call right on the site. And that's usually like the main call to action, or you can grab our lead magnets. And it, we don't really make people fill out a form because it works for people that are small, big, yeah. whatever it is. If you're an entrepreneur, and you need to hire VAs, then it works for you. So it definitely depends more on the business model. I will say if you are a new entrepreneur, let's say you're starting an agency for the first time, I am a huge proponent of getting on calls with your potential clients and asking them questions and learning about them and learning about their pain points and what they like and what they thought of your website, what they thought of your forms, your onboarding right. potential. You want to collect that feedback before you just start a business and hire a bunch of sales reps and they go off and do, you don't know what, like that information is gold. I, to me, I'm a, I am did that at FreeUp. The first year of free FreeUp, I was doing all the sales calls, learned a ton, helped me tweak the business, make some really great changes, learn what customers like. It also helped me develop a sales pitch that I would put against any sales pitch out there and we would talk to people on the phone. And then I could teach all that to my sales reps who took over in years two to four before we sold it. And that was extremely helpful. Now, if you're a veteran entrepreneur or you're like me and you don't necessarily want to do sales calls, I get that too. But if you're in year one, there's nothing better than talking directly to your potential leads and clients
1: hundred percent. That's a big point because a lot of people hide behind email. They don't want to get on phone calls. And I always try to point out that is a bad idea because you're missing that touch, that human touch. And it's really easy for people to also just to not to ignore the emails. Right. So that's really fair. But let's say that you've excluded people to an extent, or maybe just open it up and people could just book with you and they talk to you on the phone. Do you then, what's the best way, especially with outbound, right? What's the best way to get somebody to want to talk to you? Because what a lot of people do is they do the direct sales pitch model, and sometimes that works. And sometimes you just send out 10,000 emails a month and you can get 100 people to say yes. Sometimes that works. But do you prefer a direct sales model, one outbound, or do you even do outbound, or do you prefer a almost like universal value offer where you say, hey, take me up on this free thing and then try to get them on a call with you and then try to convince them. What is your strategy for Outbound?
0: The real strategy is trial and error and seeing what works and doesn't work and making tweaks. I've tried with free up. we did a lot of outreach and we tried direct stuff. We tried less pushy stuff where it's like, hey, this is what we do. We'd love five minutes of your time if you have it. We obviously had like lead magnets and all of that. So it, I try to avoid the like, do this and then your business will be successful. Entrepreneur just Entrepreneurship just isn't that easy. A lot of times yeah. you have to try different things and make tweaks and do things for a week and then adjust your email pitch or have five different email pitches and try them out and see what works and what resonates and what doesn't that that's how that's my mentality throughout it like at outsource school we have our lead generation formula which shows you how to do outbound with virtual assistants and we give you our sales pitches and we encourage you to trial and error and track it and see what's working and not give up if you do it for two weeks and you don't land one client that's a part of it and failure is a big part of it too you have to be able to fail when it comes to that cold outreach and learn from it and make
1: yeah Because I've seen that a lot because we we have the benefit of just you, actually, just seeing all these companies and what they're trying and learning from them as they're either succeeding or failing. And what I've seen with Outbound is that it could be almost a little like strike gold eventually. And it's a little bit of luck. You don't really know if the pitch is going to work with the audience. You just got to keep doing it until you make it work. That's why it's called prospecting, right? So whether it is a freebie that you're offering or whether it's a direct sales pitch, the a lot of times the direct sales pitch just falls on deaf ears because they don't even care. They just see it as spam and they're like, get out of my inbox. But sometimes you find someone who really needs it. And then you just milk that audience for a really long time and you can stick with it. So it sounds like we're both familiar with that. Now, in terms of once you got them on a call and you're trying to close them, what do you typically do in terms of getting them to buy? A lot of people, and I'm actually a, a fan of this strategy, but people have a lot of different ones where it's like, if you know someone's really interested and you know that they're very interested to buy, you could just send them the deck, you could review the deck and hopefully they move forward. Or you could show them a little bit of what you can do, build that confidence, maybe even give them a freebie, like a free sample, and then they buy What's your strategy with that? Do you prefer to give free stuff up front to get them to buy? Or do you prefer to talk to them, demonstrate the value, ask questions, send them a pitch deck, and then try to close them? What's your strategy typically?
0: I'm definitely not a pitch deck guy. And there's probably people way smarter than me that disagree with that, but I've never been one to to send people pitch decks. I personally don't like getting sent pitch decks, so I don't necessarily send them to other people. And I would not do work for free unless I had a payment method on file. So for me, the next step is always adding a payment method, even if we're not charging them, even if we're giving them a free month of bookkeeping or free up, they're not hiring someone right away. First step is adding a payment method to show that they're in. Now I have like tons of lead methods and free resources and stuff like that, that they can go bonanzas over. But if they're ready to go, the next step is hey, add a payment method. Like I was just talking to a client for a bookkeeping business and he's, hey, I'm in. I'm, my message is always the same. It's so great. Add a payment method. As soon as you do that, my integration manager will reach out and we'll get going. And they know the next step is on them. It's pretty cut and dry.
1: So when you say add a payment method, that's not them paying, that's just adding it. And then they get charged at a certain date and time. Is that correct?
0: Yeah, we, I build like custom client portals for any business I run. And so they, they log in, they can add, choose ACH or credit card, they get a discount if they use ACH, and they can easily add a credit card. And then there, there might be an upfront charge or there might not, it depends. Am I doing two years of their books? Great, then I need to charge them upfront to go back and do it. Are we just starting from now right. going forward? Then there's no upfront charge. But yeah, they add it or say free up, same thing. They might not start right away, so they wouldn't get charged right away. But the next step is always adding that, that payment method.
1: So it's like with ClickFunnels in a certain sense, Sense where I think they do thirty days of a trial, but you have to put your credit card down in order to take advantage of that. So it's similar in that sense. They have to put their, they have to make some kind of a commitment, is what you're saying.
0: Absolutely. I would not do like actual work for anyone unless there was a payment method on file.
1: And it's actually funny because I recently had Jason Swank on the show, and he said a similar thing where it's like we do a initial payment just to show that they're serious, and then we'll continue talking to them and maybe do some other stuff for free, but. There has to be some kind of uh, commitment that's given. Did you always used to do that? Or was that something you started doing and it like made a huge difference? Can you walk me through when you started to do that?
0: That's a good question. I think I always started to do that. I think that was always just my mentality in business is get ahead of that. There were definitely early times in free up where we let a client keep going and our software and our process weren't down. And we realized a week later that they hadn't added a payment method and the VA has done all this work and then they disappeared <laughs> and didn't pay us. And you learn that lesson really quickly. But yeah, that, that's probably where it all came from.
1: That makes a lot of sense. Now in terms of the, so let's say whether you get them to do a payment method or whether you get an initial payment or whatever that is. After that point though, how does follow-up look like with the companies that you run? It, how many follow-ups do you generally do? What is discussed during those follow-ups? Do you do scheduled follow-ups or do you just call them a bunch and email them a bunch until they move forward? Walk me through that because that part is where a lot of people mess up is they don't know how to follow up correctly. And a lot of times they don't follow up at all. So I'm curious to see what your thoughts are. Are we
0: talking about before they add a payment method like if they're just It could
1: a, be it, it could be yeah it's before before they add you've talked about the value you're trying to get them to make a purchase or add their payment method and you got to follow up with them what do you guys do in those situations
0: Yeah. So, I mean, if we're talking like once I had a pay method, then my team takes over, they get integrated, they get started. Same with free app. We have an an onboarding person that kind of hit their arm running. So usually sales is done at that point. Although we'll schedule like a check-in after a few weeks or a month because we want to get feedback. And if the client's not happy, we want to know about that before they... Stop working with us. We want to get ahead right. of all that and make it right. From a follow up, I'm a. So if you think of like least amount of follow up, most aggressive follow up, I kind of lean more on the aggressive side without trying to go too ham. I always feel yeah. like less is more. Like I just got a client before that he was like, oh, wow, thanks for being persistent. Like most clients that are interested in working with you are going to thank you for being more persistent more than be annoyed that you followed up too much. Right. But you should create your own sequence and do trial and error. And it should be a combination of email, texting, and calls. And it should be, hey, follow up email, follow up text, like phone call, spread it out, add two of something, whatever. Yeah. But really try to like tweak that over time until you come up with your really good process. And even for me going to business, it's not the same for each business. Like I found yeah. with bookkeeping the the phone calls and the texts work better than emails. And it almost makes sense to do a little bit more upfront, because if you wait three weeks by then, they've already found another bookkeeper and you um, should have done more follow up. But free up wasn't like that at all. Like people would just get busy and then you'd follow up with three weeks and be like, oh, I got this account of free up. But then they go out and hire a freelancer. So sometimes there's a little right. trial and error to just see what works with your business.
1: But how many of those should you typically send? If you had to build a model for a sales team, would you say that it's 10 over 30 days if it was an agency? Just to be clear, like I know it's different businesses, but there's like a general sense of what needs to be done. And I think the big thing a lot of people fail on is they think that they, most people never follow up. So just giving people a number sometimes is helpful because they just don't even do it at all. So if you had to give people like a rule of thumb, what would you say is probably a good average?
0: I'm usually in that four to eight range. I don't think I follow up with people 10 times. To me, that's excessive in like a 30-day period with the only exception to that being if the client like showed interest or asked me to follow up or was like waiting on one last thing and they were like, they're communicating. Yeah. But for me, like at least four times, definitely not less than that. And probably up to eight just depending on the situation.
1: Yeah. And how do you make sure so this next section, I think is very valuable for people. Now, let's say that they've closed deals, they're getting people in the pipeline, they're able to retain them, they're doing all this stuff. Now they want to scale, right? They're scaling up their business. I'm assuming your business has most people who do sales. Give me a sense of how you manage other sales reps, or do you even manage other sales reps? How do you ensure that they're doing a good job? How do you do? You, do you like audit their pipeline every day to make sure that they're doing the right thing? Like, what does your typical cadence look like?
0: Yeah. One thing I wanted to add that I forgot. Once you sign a client, I'm a big fan of encouraging them to complete onboarding as quickly as possible. Like with our bookkeeping business, we'll give the client a hundred dollar credit if they complete integration within five days. So it incentivizes them to not have delays on their side, which only helps your business. And it doesn't have to be a hundred bucks. It could be 25, 50, figure out your own number, but stuff like that to move clients along can be very incentivizing and help you get clients going and help get your billing started faster too, depending on your business model. 100%. Uh, yeah. So in terms of like sales rep, I'm a big proponent of the cheapest possible software. Like we use Trello and PipeDrive and we don't really get into Salesforce. I've never really done that in my companies. I run stuff pretty lean. And yeah, just checking in with them, especially early on, you're micromanaging them. You're having every draft email go through you. You're checking each thing on Trello each day to see how often it is. You're creating that that cadence to say, hey, you're texting people, emailing whatever the chain is and making sure they're actually following it. And as people earn your trust, you and hopefully that happens very quickly. quickly back off on it. But for me, like the sales pitches, you the sales process is your entire business. So with free up, like if we were not doing well in the sales process, then things wouldn't have gone well. So we had to get that down. And so that's me talking to the clients first, developing the sales process, the follow-ups and all that. Then it's me recording sales calls, creating SOPs, teaching someone to do it. Then it's me being really on top of them, micromanaging them, checking their emails, correcting them, teaching them, being on calls with them that they did, and then giving them feedback after the call. And then it's slowly backing off to where they can hopefully take over. And that can happen quickly. That can all happen within 30 days, but you don't want to get out of it until you really know that they're on top of it, and then figure out how often you should be checking in on them.
1: And how important just because I want to stress this point, but how important is follow up to you? If you had a qualitative statement about follow ups, would you say that without follow ups, you don't really have sales? Or is it like you could probably build a business that doesn't require follow ups as much? Like, how important is it to the businesses that you run? Is follow up super important?
0: has to be. Yeah, it's super important. My biggest thing is if you want to slow down sales, let's say you've gotten to a point where you're like, all right, I need my team to catch up. I need to focus on operations. Like Whenever you're driving a car, sometimes you need to pull over and get an oil change. That's pretty normal. The best way to slow it down is to like chill on the follow-up for a little bit. And then to ramp it back up, it's to go out and follow up with your old leads and warm leads and turn it in. So follow-up should be extremely important and a big part of all your sales.
1: Yeah. And do you think that, how do you make sure that people are actually doing the follow-ups? Like, for example, and I say this because this is more of a technical question. You have your closers in the CRMs and like you said, Trello and all this stuff, but sometimes they forget to add that note that says, oh, I called. Or sometimes the software doesn't always like actually show a phone call went through, or are you just like laser focused into saying you have to track everything you're doing? Like, how do you know that they're actually following up? How do you ensure that they're actually following up?
0: You, if you want to go really micromanaging, you can have them CC you in every email. You can have their inbox open. I use Dialpad to send text, so I can have Dialpad open and see what texts are going out. Like I, I'm a big proponent of not taking people's word on stuff until they actually prove it. Yeah, maybe that's like the whole hiring a lot of VAs and being paranoid thing, but I definitely want to see proof of stuff that they're doing before I bet back off. And I can be a very hands off boss. I'm all about trust. I'm all about having the seniors and the team leaders and and roll with it. And if you're doing things right, you really need to talk to me. But until you you prove that you're doing exactly my process with no exceptions, I want to see everything that you're doing. And it, it also can lead to good feedback too. I might be cc'd an email and I can say, hey, try this sentence out. Or maybe I see that, hey, we're sending too many texts. We need to spread out the time in between, especially early on, being able to make those tweaks in real time is important.
1: Yeah, that's super valuable. Now, I'd love for you to give us a little background as we wrap up here. Can you give us a sense? Because it's pretty amazing what you're able to do to get it to eight figure business. And then you have your new businesses now too. that one sold to the Hoth for anyone who's curious, because a lot of people use the Hoth that, that listen to this podcast. What was that journey like? Did was there? A, was it always an exponential growth curve? Was it five years of crap and then eventually just took off. A lot of people get discouraged running an agency and they kind of need some hope. And maybe yours was always great from the beginning. I don't know. What was that like for you?
0: Yeah. So to give a background, I was a big e-commerce seller. So I started when I was 20 out of my college dorm room and I started buying and selling textbooks and got a cease and desist letter from my school, which ended up being like the best thing that ever happened to me, got me into (laughs) trying other products on Amazon, got into Amazon super early. The timing was great, 2008, 2009. And my Amazon business really scaled and we thought we were going to take over the world. We got an office, lots of full-time employees. We were doing $7 million a year. And that business slowly started to fade out for a lot of reasons. Amazon changed their algorithm. More sellers were coming on. The different things that we were doing was not as acceptable as it was early on, like drop shipping from different manufacturers, Amazon, different policies on it. So we thought we had our business and that business slowly collapsed. And that was hard. And we had to lay people off. And there were lots of things that kind of stuck with us. And we used a lot of VAs and freelancers for that business. And as we saw more people selling on Amazon and people starting marketing agencies, we had this idea to offer VAs and freelancers to the digital entrepreneurs, for lack of a better word. And we started that business with $5,000 and MVP gave people some free hours of VAs. And that business really took off. And that was a lot of fun. It was our first our first opportunity to have our own brand, our own website to go to do B2B, to go on podcasts. And we grew that business from a million to 5 million to 9 million to 12 million before selling it. So while that business had a big growth spurt and did really well, if you look at it on a year to by year business, it came after a pretty crushing thing with our Amazon business. And there were lots of hiccups throughout the way. Like one time we didn't get hacked, but someone from China decided to set up something where someone would sign up a fake account every minute on the minute. So we're just getting like hundreds, thousands of signups over and over and over. And we just had to stop what we were doing for two weeks and just figure out how to get this to stop. We had other things where one of our partners came out with a competing product and this partner was huge, way bigger than FreeUp. So at the time in our head, the back of our mind we're thinking, oh man, this is the end, like writing on the wall. And we ended up having (laughs) go head to head with them and beat them in their own game. And they ended up shutting down that part of their business. There were Tons of ups and downs, and even going through the sale, like that was the most stressful six months of my life. I woke up every day saying, Hey, is this business going to fall through? I got to stay focused on growing free up because if we didn't sell it, then I need a business to fall back on and dealing with the lawyers and everything that kind of goes into that. So while free up from a sales trajectory was up, it definitely wasn't all up. And there were a lot of ups and downs and overall stressful times throughout it.
1: That's super that's super valuable information. I do have one more question about the follow-up thing I want to circle back around before we wrap up here, which is a lot of people are tossed in their CRMs behind whether they should have automated follow-up sequences through email and text versus just customizing everything. Do you prefer to have automated follow-up sequences or do you think that people should just have a list of all the follow-ups by day, time, and channel and just say, do all these things and make sure you leave a note that you've done these things inside the CRM so I know that they happened. What's your preferred method?
0: Yeah, I would always start off with custom and then build that into automated, like really make sure that you tried the custom ones enough and know what works and what doesn't work for your actual business before you start automating stuff. Because like I said, what worked in free up didn't work in outsource school, It didn't work in econ balance. There were variations of it that did work, but we only knew, figured out what worked by tweaking and creating stuff and trying stuff and customizing it before putting it into active campaign or automating it or whatever it is. So yeah. that's my take on it.
1: Fantastic. Thank you so much, man, for being on the show. Really appreciate it. This has been extremely valuable. Just so many pieces of information here for everybody listening to the show. Again, thank you so much for being on. Is there a place that they can go to take action on your business? I know you have a couple different things going on, and I want to make sure that they can connect with you if they're interested.
0: Yeah, appreciate it. First of all, connect with me on LinkedIn, follow me on LinkedIn, Nathan Hirsch. I put out a lot of content around hiring and bookkeeping. If you're interested in my hiring process for VAs, you can check out Outsource School, School OutsourceSchool.com. And we offer a monthly bookkeeping service for agencies, AccountsBalance.com. And if you mention this podcast, you get two months free.
1: Amazing. Amazing. Thank you so much for being on the show, man. I really appreciate it. And for everybody listening, Nathan Hirsch has grown an amazing business, scaled and sold previous business free up to the Hoth back in 2019. He helps people with outsourcing. He helps build businesses. He's a veteran entrepreneur. So thank you so much, man, for being on the show and definitely check him out online if you guys are interested. Thanks for having me.